Hey guys, I just wanted to say before we start that the guys over at BML Sports are currently raising money for November. So make sure you check out at UON BML Sports or you click the link in our description to donate. Anyway, back to the podcast. Hello everyone and welcome back to the meeting room. We are joined by another special guest, Flavio Soriano. Hello there, Flavio. Hi, Jed. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. And I'm joined by me here as well, one of my co-hosts. Afternoon, Jed. Afternoon, Flavio. Very happy to be here today. Brilliant. Um, now, I say we go straight into it. We all want to know, who are you? What do you do? And what does a consultant do? Very good question, Jed. Um, I am a mixed breed, I would say. I'm a consultant entrepreneur. I don't know what comes first. If you look chronologically, I started my companies before becoming a consultant when I was in college, my first ones. And uh, then I spent about five years working in consulting firms. Um, and then again, I'm now mixing things. I'm, I'm building a company to train consultants. Right? So this is uh, the crossroads of entrepreneurship and consulting. And answering to your question, what does a consultant do? Well, they help their clients become successful. And this question, of course, can be developed. This answer can be developed further into, uh, okay, what is exactly your client's goal and how can you help them achieve either like by, I don't know, increasing their profits or decreasing their risk exposure. So all of that, those things can be the work of a consultant. Brilliant. And um, whereabouts are you from? Sort of where did you grow up and what's your background? Yeah, I'm actually Brazilian. I was born and raised in Brazil, although I lived a few times abroad um, in places like Switzerland, France, Spain, Australia. And now I actually am based in Germany. So I, had, um, I, had, I worked also abroad as a consultant. I worked in Brazil as well as Australia, um, which is uh, one of the good things about the consulting profession. You get to work in distant le- countries and, and, and places, um, get to see the world through your job. And uh, where's been your favorite country? My favorite country right now is, I would say, Australia. I really like Australia. Um, it has I, I'm not there because course it's uh, geographically not very convenient yeah but um, since my family is in Brazil and my friends are in Europe also but uh, definitely a great country. Um, now am I correct in thinking your earlier years you set up Smooth Smoothie Bar in Sao Paulo um, what did you find enticing at this time about entrepreneurship and setting up your own business? I wanted to have hands-on experience because if you look at university they don't really teach you how to be an entrepreneur right they teach you how to analyze existing businesses they might have some tracks on entrepreneurship and so on but nothing like putting your hands on something and facing the challenges yourself so by the end of college my yeah was my junior year i decided to get some family money, borrow money, and and then launch my own business, uh, assemble the team of five employees, um, build my own concept. I really like smoothies, so 
I created the first smoothie bar um, in, in the region, in Sao Paulo. And it was a great experience. I think I learned so much in one and a half year. I could never have learned that uh, just studying. Um, and therefore, even if I didn't make any money, actually, I lost money in this adventure. I, I ended up selling the business at a loss. I think it was a very good investment. That's really interesting. I think, you know, being a, a new entrepreneur comes with lots of challenges, obviously not having much knowledge about how to run a business and things like that. So how did you deal with those challenges and how did you overcome it to make it successful? Well, it's it's a matter of applying what others already learned before you um, and and being brave, right? It takes a lot of courage. Of course, every business is unique. Every situation is unique. Sometimes challenges are seem unsurmountable and messy, but actually you have to have the mentality of one day after the other, right? So one day at a time. Yeah, and if you, I would say, if you assemble a good team, that's the most important job of an entrepreneur, right? A good, competent team that you can trust in and and motivate them to, to achieve your vision, to go with you where you want to go. I think most of your problems are become small, right? And and this is my main learning from from all of that experience. I was lucky to have great teams by my side, so uh, we could definitely overcome our obstacles. And how do you feel like this sort of early experience affected uh, the way you you run a certain business, the way you manage people in your future ventures up until the present day? Yeah, that's a very good question, Jed. I think the most important legacy of my early entrepreneur experiences were that somehow I started thinking like the owner always, and this helped me a lot in consulting. Um, I think ownership is one of the rarest things that you find right in, in the business. Like it's an attitude. And it's a mindset. And if you have your own business, you don't have a boss, right? You don't have anyone to tell you what to do, when to do it. Have you done enough? Is it good enough? And so on. You just like, the sky's the limit. And there's no one to actually tell you, um, to give you feedback on how you're doing. And I think this mindset of like, okay, let me do just my best as, as the owner. This helped me stand out also in consulting. Because most people didn't have that experience and, and they had difficulties in, in thinking in terms of end results for the business. They were always thinking in terms of intermediary results of making their boss happy and not necessarily doing the best for the business. And if you think in terms of end results, you have a lot of advantages. For instance, you can push back work and you can say why you're not doing a certain analysis, right? That takes time and does not contribute to the end results. And why you want to do something that is not on your plate yet, but you find extremely important for the business. And your bosses suddenly see like, okay, this guy's really invested. Um, I'm going to listen to him or to her. I'm going to give them freedom because they are thinking in terms of he's aligned to the results of the, of the project. Right? Um, now, you went to university and did a master's, I believe. Firstly, sort of what, what universities did you go to and what masters did you study? Um, and then 
after that you moved to a company McKinsey which is a very reputable company what was this process like going from university into into this this business yeah so I went to McKinsey after my master's um before I did my bachelor in, in business management from a top business school in Brazil and I worked for a few years not many but maybe a couple in another consulting firm called Arthur De Little then I did my masters um I chose the Sams master which is a international alliance of 35 universities more or less and I studied in Brazil in Spain and in Australia, <laughs> again, Australia in my life. So I spent two years studying management. Um, it was, it was actually, to be honest, um, con the content was not oh, like extremely, um, let's say, wonderful addition to to what I already could and knew knew. But um, I think the experience um, of working internationally. And with smart people, right, doing projects with other smart people and creating a network and so on. This was very unique, and I think it was totally worth it to have this um, this network of the SEMS alumni, which I use it to this day, right. So I I recommend everyone like studying um, to really invest in staying connected to your alumni network because this helps you in the future. Like I can attest that SEMS has helped help me promote Highbridge. They have helped me hire people and so on. Um, now, is the perception true about McKinsey? It's sort of a glamorous company. There's there's the traveling, the nice hotels. Was it, was it what you expected when you turned up to the business? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, of course you hear about the consulting lifestyle and to, and it, it's true, right? So you you serve clients globally, you travel a lot, um, you stay in nice places, but it's not the main reason why someone should go to consulting um, because in the end of the day, the core, like you spend most of your time like really trying to solve difficult problems from getting data that is scattered and difficult to get, to cleaning the data, to, to formulating hypotheses with your team, investigating, interviewing people, um, um, doing analysis, um, research, so and building pages, discussing pages, presenting, and so on. So this is uh, the core of the work, right? So if you go to consulting to to achieve difficult things, to have difficult and, and oftentimes a lot of time pressure situations, then you are in the right place, right? You like to be stretched, you like to be out of your comfort zone and so on. I think the glamour, the prestige, it comes with it. I think people admire consultants in the market because they are usually very selected and uh, hardworking people. But I would say that Hardly ever I saw a, a happy consultant because of the perks. I think happy consultants are usually attracted to the challenges and to achievement. Um, and then the perks are there. It's nice, of course, to, to get a business trip paid to, to the other side of the world, but should not be the main motivation. 
So McKinsey is obviously, like we mentioned, one of the best consulting firms in the world. Uh, so obviously with that, comes at, uh, with that comes some prestigious clients, but also some very challenging clients, like you mentioned. So can you tell us a little bit about your favorite uh, client you had and your favorite project and then also your most challenging project and really what you felt uh, was the toughest for you to crack? Mm. I think one of the projects I, th- I liked a lot was a strategic assessment for a state in the Amazon forest. And they hired McKinsey to create a plan for 2030 to develop the state. So the state could have, could reach a per capita income equal to the average of the country. It was below average at the time. And I like that project because of the sheer impact that it could create. We're working direct, working with the governor um, and the team, the development team. Uh, we had to look strategically at like over 50 potential industries to focus on and develop um, in industry services and agriculture. And um, it was really insightful to think about like, okay, well, how's the world going to be in 2030? What are the forces in place? What are the tendencies and what are the value that this state can create, right? What are they good at? Um, It was challenging, uh, very challenging because the population was not very large. So we had no critical mass for, for industry, for manufacturing. And also, of course, developing a service hub takes a lot, a lot of time, not only 10 years. Uh, so you need to work on human capital for a long time, uh, like India did. Um, and also challenging because agriculture, uh, it's very mechanized. Um, soybeans and cattle, like they don't really need a lot of uh, labor, therefore, you have a concentration of wealth. And, but we were able to recommend quite a bit of um, insightful action plans to do better what they already did. Um, I don't know if you, if you know acai berries. Uh, it's a famous uh, product from Brazil. They yeah, all come, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah they come from that state. Um, so we recommended adding value to the acai berry supply chain, like creating more ice cream and cereal yeah. bars and so on. So you're adding value to that as well as like railroads and other investments that could pay off. So yeah, this was my favorite uh, project in terms of impact, but I also did great projects, uh, interesting things in Australia and in Brazil as well. Um, now, in terms of joining the company as a, as a younger man, how did you feel treated by management, people further up the chain as such? And um, if there was any sort of lack of respect or, or that lack of... Um, people seeing you as as useful how how did you deal with this Mm -hmm. yeah you always have a challenge extra challenging consulting because you are young when you start and you get exposed to clients who have 20 30 years of industry experience and not all of them see uh, you as a valuable asset to the team that's absolutely true Consulting firms, they understood since a long time that young, smart, motivated people can really advise CEOs and C-level executives. But some clients, they still hire for experience. They want to hear like how many years have you worked on that industry and how many how many clients have you served and so on. And if you say zero, <laughs> they are not very happy with the choice of the staffing. Um, and... I had this problem when I arrived in my first project at McKinsey. I didn't know, but the main client 
was one of those people. They, he believed in experience more than potential, which resulted that he was waiting for me to make mistakes. So I was basically uh, in a difficult situation, it was my first project. And whenever I made some mistake, like a spreadsheet, spreadsheet mistake, uh, they found some error in or made one of one time I remember I sent an email to another director and he didn't want the person to know uh, what we were doing. So he was hiding an initiative from another part of the company, which happens like internal politics and so on. So as a consultant, you're stepping on eggs sometimes you have to be very careful. And and um, these minor mistakes are, are I would say that junior mistakes um, really caused him to like be quite uh, open about changing, about removing me from the team, right? Replacing me with a more experienced consultant. The, but McKinsey doesn't uh, necessarily uh, listen to that request. Like they can, uh, of course, find ways to decrease the risk of, of those things happening again. And I must say that I was extra careful with anything I delivered after after those first episodes. But I realized that, yes, uh, as a consultant, you have to be prepared for it. And if confronted directly, you have to be prepared to defend your, your skills as well, right? You might not have experience, but you come from a good school, you are uh, highly selected, and you're working with the experts, right? So you're basically connected to a whole team of thousands of people um, that you can pull experience from and apply that knowledge to the current problem. So this is how the model works and it does work. And the uh, clients sometimes need to be reminded of that. That's great. I think kind of on the same um, front. So consulting is a very competitive uh, career pathway, especially amongst your fellow peers. So uh, can you tell us about your experience with your fellow consultants at your level as to whether they were as friendly in helping you out with your work if you needed it or if they were really competitive about making sure that they were the ones on the next big project so they could make their way up the ladder? Of course. To be honest, there is no competition within consulting for for a long time, I would say. Um, although it's very competitive to get in, once you're there... I know from my experience and also by talking to others that it's an extremely collaborative environment where the challenges are so great that you have to team up, you have to do the best for your team. Um, each person has a different work stream, so they don't compete directly with like metrics that you can compare people. Usually you have a team of four or five consultants and each one is taking care of one completely different work front. Um, so it's hard to compare. Um, I never felt consultants comparing for exposure, like, oh, I will present this and so on. Although it can happen that sometimes a manager wants to, sometimes, so a good manager will let the team shine. Sometimes they will not. They will try to get the, the credits and present everything and don't give space to the junior consultants. This can happen, right? And there are different reactions you can have to this. Um, but competition might happen in higher ranks. Like when you get into the level of partner um, and to have to be a partner, you need to have clients, right? You need to secure clients and the relationships and you might have fewer potential relationships than 
than people. So there is a little bit more competition there, I think, coming to the top of the pyramid, let's say. Okay, yeah, that's very interesting. And I think one thing that people are quite interested in is when you enter consulting, obviously it's quite a fast-paced environment. So can you tell us about how you kind of adapted and adjusted your workflow to make sure that you met all the deadlines and dealt with all the different tasks on your plate as well? Because I can imagine that'd be quite challenging. Yeah, you in a top consulting firm, you will have always more work than you can actually accomplish with the quality that you want to, which, and this constant pressure of like having more work is what makes you better, makes you more productive, makes you learn the tricks and especially makes you learn how to prioritize or impact, right? Because you will be given work and then in the middle of the project or you'll be given more work and then potentially more things will come and sometimes you need to help something it's not even related to your client. It's like office is doing a survey and, and you've been asked to help. So there's always a ton of things uh, to do and on your plate, um, which and this pressure that it makes you revisit your priorities often. And that's how you do it. Like you can, for instance, you can talk to your manager twice a week or three times a week about what's on your what's on your plate and what has to be done, what is a must-have, what is a nice-to-have, and so on and so forth. So the art of prioritizing and reprioritizing things and sometimes saying no to things is critical here. And not only in consulting, but in life and business and in this environment where you always have more to do than time, um, you're forced to do it. And uh, you eventually get very productive and good at those things, right? So the, the, the thing is, I always say that once I heard work is like a gas, it occupies the space that you allow, allow it to take, right? And it's the same thing. So if you give three hours for someone to do something, they will take three hours. If you give one hour, they'll take one hour. If you give 15 minutes, they'll take 15. So uh, the quality level can vary. But in a sense, this time boxing and this pressure is important. So time boxing is a technique. Um, prioritizing, reprioritizing is another technique. And another one is breaking things down, right? So never have a, a task that takes six hours. Like try to think about what are all the steps of those six hour tasks in little chunks of 30 minutes to an hour. And then you work and then it looks a lot more uh, approachable than a six-hour task. Um, now, obviously, people that are listening right now, our listeners are largely university students. Um, those who, who are graduating and looking to take that next step into consultancy, what would you sort of recommend and what advice would you give to those people looking to get into the industry? And how do you feel they could utilize their time at university to prepare themselves for this? Mm, yeah, I get this question a lot. I think consulting has to be seen or is effectively a school. It's something that most people will spend some time in and maybe 10% or 5% of people will make it into partnership, right? Will, will make a career out of it. And even those people, after 15, 20 years in consulting, they're still young and they go ahead as retired senior partners and they go do something else. So consulting is really a school. It's really a, a stage, a station 
whatever you want to call it, where you spend time learning the skills you want and the skills to make you a better uh, or more impactful business leader. And you can use those skills in government, in NGOs, in entrepreneurship, in other companies, whatever you may want to pursue. So I definitely recommend everyone who is thinking about consulting to persist in the plan and spend some time there, right? You're going to advance fast. It's going to be intense, of course, but you take a lot out of it, right? If you put in a balance, the cost benefit, uh, it is, it is very beneficial. Um, I've never met a consultant who said I didn't learn a lot or I regret fully having done this. Um, it's, it's really, it pays off. Like you get what you invest. To prepare, I think first you have to make up your mind. You have to, to be sure that you, you want this. Right? If you spend too long thinking, oh, I can do consulting, but I can also do investment banking, or maybe I start a company, and you are split among those options and you are paralyzed because you don't start yeah. preparing for anything, then this is bad because your, your peers, many of them are decided, right? And if you're decided, you invest more. And if you invest more, you're better. So I, I do recommend uh, people to make up their minds, even if it's just like, I'm going to do an internship in consulting. And that's what, like, I'm clear on it. I have a goal. Then have a preparation plan and do, do see it as a marathon, right? It is a marathon. Most people I see start preparing like two weeks before they have an interview. And this is actually not enough um, to clearly stand out. So you have to start early. Three to six months of preparation before an interview is recommended. Um, you do need to work on business cases steadily, like with good partners, with good peers, as well as con like continue learning business sense, reading magazines, articles, watching videos that add 1% more knowledge to your mind. And eventually when you come to your interview, you'll have a, more, a lot more baggage than your competition. And um, this will pay off. Yeah, I think obviously I've I've had a, a consulting session with you with the BML Society, so you can tell how preparation is so important. Something I was actually really interested in is obviously you say consulting is like a school. So when you were at McKinsey, did you feel that training and mentorship from your uh from your direct seniors was really continued? And is it something that they like tried to really push on you to keep teaching you the right way to uh, to consult? Mm -hmm. Training in, in those firms is very limited, direct training. You get a bit shocked that you get one week of training right at the start. And, and in the second week, you might be facing clients already. Um, and you, you might get another week of training after one year, one and a half year of work, right? So it's not a lot of, let's say, formal training. Um, the firms, they, they provide you with on the job learning opportunities, because if you receive a task like, hey, do you have to create this model to measure how much iron ore can we produce? And you've never done a model before, you'll have people on your team and also experts that will spend some of their time helping you out. But that said, everybody's really busy. 
So you have to figure out a lot of things by yourself and have to like look for for like Google content and best practices and, and things like that. Um, so it is intense in the sense of like, you have the responsibilities to achieve and at the same time you're learning. That's often why consultants work long hours. Um, and I do recommend that you are prepared for the basic skills and the important things before you step into this career. This is what we try to achieve at Highbridge. Um, we try to bring skills that help people develop faster and have a nicer time. So they learn with us modeling very well. They learn how to present, how to speak, how to um, structure and so on. Um, and I think the other, yeah, you in, in consulting, you are responsible for your development as well. So you have self-learning opportunities. You have uh, like online tools or you can take courses. To be honest with you, I took few, very few. And I know that most people don't take any um, because you really need to invest time on it. But they, they make this available to you, like online training. Um, and yeah, but, but in a sense... It is, um, as I said, you're, you're responsible for your development. You don't get a lot of formal training and you get help from your team according to the job you're doing. But the better prepared, the bet, like the, the, bet, the more prepared you are, of course, the, the less traumatic is any experience like that. Sure, sure. I guess one, one thing you touched on just now is about the whole long hours thing. So one stigma of consulting is you work really long hours. And like we mentioned earlier about the traveling. So how did you kind of deal with the expectation for you to work in those long hours? Did you actually end up doing, you know, the the 9 to 11 or the 9 to 12 um, work days? And kind of just tell us about that, uh, that change for you. Consulting is famous for long hours, but not like unsustainable long hours most of the time. I would say it is considered normal to work from 9 to 9 or 8 to 8 something like in those ranges, this would be a normal day because um, of several reasons. Uh, you work more than, than your clients usually because you are solving their toughest problems and, and therefore it needs an extra push, an extra effort to, to achieve what you have to achieve in such a short period of time. Um, teams are small, right? And they are very expensive for the client. So you have to share uh, a lot of work among few team members. Um, but as I said, like in a normal day, if you finish at eight or nine, you can still like have dinner normally and, and sleep, right? Which is very important Monday to Friday um, to, to sleep well and be rested for the next day. Consultants usually don't work on weekends. There is a strong protection culture of the weekend, although this might happen. A few times, very few times, but I know partners who said like he, he they can count how many weekends they've worked, right? Um, and and therefore it's different from banking, um, which sometimes you work seven days a week, um, and entrepreneurship as well, seven days a week. I can say that. Um, so you have this normal situation. Of course, there are uh, exceptional projects and, and situations where you have to give an extra push and work until later, like midnight, 1, 2 a.m. Um, I know for a fact that shorter projects 
they tend to be more intense because if you have four weeks to achieve a due diligence and deliver that, you probably have every single day counts. So you have to have results every single day of the project. Um, and you might face difficulties in research and things that data missing or the client doesn't deliver some data and so on. Um, some people love it because it feels like it's an extra adrenaline rush and so on. Uh, you learn a lot from, from that. Um, I personally avoided those projects and I was able to have my whole consulting experience, I think five or six times, I had to work a bit over the, the expected. Other than that, it was pretty normal. It's all a, a, a function of how well you prioritize, how productive you are during the day, right? And how well aligned you are with the manager and so on um, to protect your, your evenings and your nights. Um, but it's, it's doable. And although you have to step in to this with the mindset of like, okay, I'm in for delivering. So whatever it takes, I will deliver. And uh, then you are fine. You are aligned with the, the culture. Um, now, consultancy is obviously very well known to be requiring strong client relationships and dealing with clients. Um, and, and you've talked a lot about dealing with them and delivering certain projects. And also when there's there's issues perhaps of them not supplying data when when you need it how do you like to approach dealing with firstly a new client what what sort of attitude do you go into it with and existing clients as well how do you how do you like to approach and maintain that relationship mm -hmm. yeah interesting um i can i can say that for instance in mckinsey uh you had always a project a project code was three letters for the client and then a number to represent what number was that project, right? So famously, uh, you have the 001. When you say like, oh, it's a 001, means it's the very, very first project with that client. And some clients, of course, they are like 852. So they're like large clients with a long story. Um, definitely, it's totally different. A 001, it's a project where the, the company is still learning how the client behaves and how they work, what they expect and so on um, and vice versa. So it's, uh, it demands more attention from the senior leadership as well as extra miles, right? In the 001 is your opportunity to show that the millions they are paying are worth it. So definitely it's, you have more pressure as an analyst, as an associate or can a 001 then in a 852. So I would say that that's the main difference I could tell. Um, if you impress a client from the start, of course you get continued business, but if you don't, you might not never have a 002. So that's the difference. I think it, it's a, it applies to every new client. Uh, I think in consulting is the same. Brilliant. Um, now, you, the next stage of your career, I believe you left McKinsey and um, you actually went to a company called SumUp. Um, now, how did you adapt to, obviously, there, there perhaps be a different culture in the two companies and, and the new position as well? Mm. Um, I, did, I did leave consulting after five years uh, with actually an MBA sponsorship on the table. 
I was invited to stay and do an MBA and come back later. But I really, the founder inside me was screaming like, hey, I want to start something soon. Um, although I was not fully prepared and I decided to take a position at SumUp to learn how to manage a successful startup. Um, and that's what I did for two years. And the culture was surprisingly like, had a lot of similarities because the DNA of the company was consulting, right? The CEO was an ex-bank manager and the CMO as well. So they had a lot of the rituals and the, the management structures and practices that were copied from consulting. Like performance evaluation was like pretty much the same kind of grid. So in the sense, um, yeah, I still felt half at home but it's very different because in consulting, you have a very standardized way of thinking, um, especially because people have good structuring skills, strong communication skills, and they tend to, um, they tend to be very homogeneous. Right? You can put a McKinsey or Bain BCG team, Kearney, Rollerberger, like whatever company like that, you can put them together a person from Portugal, one from China, one from Chile, one from South Africa. And in day two, they are flying, right? Because they share this way of working and this mindset as well as the intellectual caliber. So those teams are very effective. That's why clients pay so much, right? A consultant might cost one day of a consultant might cost a month of, of a regular employee. Yeah. Um, and and therefore, when you leave consulting, it's very common that people like start thinking, oh, I miss my colleagues because we were so effective, right? But this is the challenge. Uh, consulting firms are very small, work in a very small team. So even if you're a manager there, your, your leadership experience is not very representative, right? You're just leading a group of like a small group of super motivated and capable people. Um, Whereas in, in reality and in, in the real world, like outside consulting, let's say, um, you have different profiles, diversity, and different ways of thinking and different motivation levels. And you have to put that all together as a real more challenging for a leader than, than a consulting engagement. Um, so I think those are the main differences. And I see that repeatedly people saying like, yeah, it's very, very different work style and pace, uh, it's much less stressful, naturally. Um, and, but, but in the end, you find good people everywhere, right? You find really smart people um, like in good companies, in, in other sectors as well. Um, it's just a matter of like the culture in consulting is very homogeneous, as I said. So just for our listeners' uh, sake, what does, what does SumUp do? And what was your role uh, in there when you left McKinsey? What did you join uh, as in the company? Mm. Yeah, I left McKinsey as a senior analyst. I joined SumUp as the CEO's associate. I worked um, also called chief of staff. I was, in, in practice, I was a consultant as well, I would say, for the CEO, uh, working on different projects. So whenever they had operations, marketing, or finance issue, I was allocated to help the team to 
restructure it to to really be hands-on and make it happen and help um i did it for for around a year and then i got transferred to germany to take the lead of the international expansion uh work stream to bring the company to new geographies which for me was very entrepreneurial it was one of the reasons i made the move um i did it for another year and uh, then i decided to leave to start my own business so on that same note while you were at sum up you found yourself creating the case study app if i'm right um how did you manage all of those different kind of responsibilities obviously your work at sum up being very important like a consultant for them but also managing this whole new app for you for yourself as well i i wanted to share my knowledge um that i i developed around case interviews with others and build a side business of it as well i started with coaching um upon demand i i wasn't really actually looking actively but people looked for me and that happens quite a lot after you work for those firms i started helping people out they liked it i structured the method around seven skills quite early um i helped a few dozens of candidates and then i thought well why not uh systematize and scale a little bit uh what i can do what i can teach in the app so i that's the reason why i created the case to academy app um it took 6 months of almost full dedication to do it um and in the end um yeah it was very satisfying but in the end people still wanted coaching um they they liked the app but but i kind of started offering a hybrid model with coaching and the app uh which was very successful reached like 67% acceptance rate at mbb firms um and then it was time for me to take the next step so i started building hybrid to like to bring even more to people just on the about your move to sum up actually so how did you find the move to germany uh so you mentioned that you were there to kind of look after their international expansion so how was that actual move and what tips can you give to any uh, anybody who's graduating and looking into working worlds who may want to work in a different country i definitely recommend if you are uh curious about working abroad just take a deep breath and go right have the courage because you definitely uh learn so much about yourself your own culture when you do that it really gives you another perspective on life and makes you a much more interesting person um not to mention that your life is also becomes more colorful because you know different uh angles of life and different cultures and perspectives so i do i i did take the the the, the opportunity um it was not the first time i already had lived abroad in a few countries as i mentioned but um if you are thinking about it um and if you have a a passport that allows you like for instance uh makes it even easier Uh, to work on other other places like if you're british you of course have the commonwealth and uh if you're european you can also easily go to a totally different culture from yours and live that for some time and maybe for a long time if you if you like it more so i do recommend um people this experience and all it takes is is courage but uh it's very much worth it 
And how did you find the adapting the culture and I guess the way you work? Because of course, different countries, like you mentioned, have different work styles. So did you have to make a lot of changes to the way you work when you moved? Or was it kind of a, a, a systematic move into kind of keeping doing what you're doing? Yeah, I think the world is getting more international. So in a per- place like Berlin, I wouldn't say even that my work experience is, is German. I would say that is pretty international and my team was like from all continents. Um, so it really depends. If you're going somewhere where all the employees, like they have a certain culture, then it's probably going to be uh, a bigger shock. Let's say, for instance, oh, I went to work in Japan and then everyone's Japanese in the team. This will be definitely uh, a bigger uh, difference, culturally speaking. Um, you will learn a lot for sure. But it's also riskier, I would say, in terms of adaptation. But if you are going to have an international team, so I'm going to work in Dublin or I'm going to work in, uh, you name the city, like I'm going to work in Cape Town and there's a super international team, expat community and so on. So the experience will be quite similar, actually, culturally speaking, um, in those hubs, right? If you go to London, Dubai and, and, and Berlin you have always this internationality going on. Um, so it's not a big, uh, let's say, if you have studied with other nationalities, if you have been around other cultures and so on, you already have some of those, um, yeah, those, those tricks and, and how to deal with people in your mind. Sure. So now let's fast forward to today. You obviously uh, are the founder of Highbridge Management Academy. Uh, so you mentioned that the, you started the case study app and that's what kind of led you towards Highbridge. Um, how are you finding running it, especially during a pandemic? And how has it been so far for you, the experience? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it has been pretty interesting. I think the pandemic did shape our company because it was initially going to be, we're going to offer, we were going to offer in-person boot camps. Um, we would fly people in and have accommodation and classroom and so on. And we had to abort, abort these plans to have a fully virtual experience on, on Zoom. I'm very grateful this happened for, for some reasons. First, we could definitely um, source faculty from everywhere. So we could maximize the quality of the faculty because we didn't have to fly in people. Um, so if a great teacher lives in Japan, which actually happens in our case, then nobody needs to fly to Berlin to teach anything, like just click and connect. Um, and this made the whole difference. And the same applies to the, the internal execution team. Uh, we have people from over 10 different countries building hybrid. And, and finally, of course, um, you have the students who got more used to online classes because of the situation. So the pandemic enabled um, virtual classes to be normal, more normal now, um, which also helped. I think on the downside, the downside of it is like, yes, you lose some of the human interaction and, and the, the cultural experience, the travel experience. But in a sense, I think Again, the cost benefit, and if you do cost benefits, I think the benefits outweigh the cost by a lot. Um, 
and people save a lot of time. They get immediately, like if you're doing breakouts, you can send them immediately to the breakouts and they do something and they come back. So there's no, uh, you, don't, you don't need to move around other rooms physically. And this saves us a lot of time. So people end up learning much more per hour than they would do in a physical classroom, I think. Um, now for Frost students who, who are listening, why is Highbridge important? Sort of what, what do you do? And also you, you run boot camps and tell us a bit about this so that people listening know where to head to for that. Sure. Um, Highbridge is designed to be pretty much a career-long partner for for students or for people who want to go into consulting. Um, because we think on it, we thought it like to be an end-to-end experience. It's not interview training company because there, there is a lot beyond the, the, the gate, right? And after you enter consulting, of course you are among very smart people, very driven people. As we said before, not to compete with them, but of course you need to keep up with the quality work. And there's a lot of challenges, right? We see um, we had to face, right? And we, as a faculty, we have 25 plus uh, faculty members from McKinsey Bay MCG. We, we all feel we could have done much better with the proper preparation and training. Um, and this is what we're trying to, we, we, actually developed to, to, to offer students an experience where you come in with the commitment to learn, with the energy, with the time, and we take care of your interview preparation, your uh, training, your case training, your, your consulting skills development. Um, so everything at the right timing for you to be successful, even after being hired, we train you on consulting leadership skills by year two. So you have this external help in helping you progress, right? It's not easy to make the move from an associate to a manager. Um, and we think that the odds of success are much higher if you have an external organization who knows you, who has tons of people who have been there, done it. Um, so this is what we are, we are envisioning. And for people who are interested in Highbridge, they just have to go to our website and there's a button to apply. We currently have closed our applications for December, the December bootcamp, but we will open again in January for the next sessions. Um, we might have uh, a few cohorts in 2021, both um, in the West as well as in the East. So it's a very global company. Um, we are selective, so you have to apply, you have to go through a process um, of like you have to do an online test, you have to do a couple of interviews. We want to know how you think, like how, um, what are your intrinsic skills so that we can take the best class to train them to be real superstars. That's great. So I think we'd like to end our podcast with one final question. Uh, it's a bit of a bit of a tough question, but I'm sure you'll be able to give us a great answer. So. From your experience, are there any specific traits or behaviors which help distinguish a successful individual? Very good question. Uh, again, all the questions are very good. And I think uh, I would boil down to three things, which are the three things that also consulting firms look for. Um, 
First is problem-solving ability. And here we're talking about the ability to break down a problem, collect data, analyze, discuss, brainstorm solutions, um, shortlist initiatives and recommend. So it's basically following a pretty hypothesis-driven approach to solve problems and being a creative thinker and critical thinker to do so. Um, that's the first one, right? Because you need intellectual capacity, you need curiosity, you need processing power to deal with all of the information that is available uh, without getting lost. Um, and so, sometimes people think like, oh, am I smart enough or everything? Yes, you need to be minimally smart to do the stuff's jobs, but it's a lot about how you think and how you, the methodology you use to approach things, um, it makes it makes a, a lot of a big difference, I'd say, because sometimes people, very smart people without a methodology, they can't achieve as much as a not perhaps not so brilliant person with the right way of thinking things through. Um, so this is the problem solving aspect. The second is drive. And to stand out, you need to have a lot of stamina and energy to, to create impact. You need to be hunger for achieving things. Many people or most people would say are not enough, uh, hungry enough for those top jobs. They might be satisfied with lower achievements or simpler jobs and simpler challenges, but to be really uh, among the top um, candidates, you need to yeah, crave for challenge and have the drive. And this can be usually seen on a person's resume, right? If the person has done extracurricular activities, involvement in clubs, launched some initiatives, showing entrepreneurial spirit, like this comes from an early age even, right? After a certain age, it's almost like it's very different, difficult to even change that attitude. Um, Although we can't change, it's not impossible. And the third one is leadership skills, right? Or people skills. Not always necessarily leading people and being the main or the protagonist of a team, but working in teams, knowing how to read people, knowing how to react and how to um, solve conflict when it arises in the constructive way, communicating, um, persuading, and negotiating all those things count to strong leadership skills because you, you might have out of the three aspects you might have only one or two right and one might be missing and therefore you will still need to develop it um, but if you have all three if you're a strong problem solver you have drive you want to achieve things you have energy and you have people skills generally you are up for success in careers like consulting um, that has been a fantastic insight into the world of consulting and some great advice there as well for everyone listening. So thank you very much, Mr. Soriano. It's been fantastic having you in the meeting room today. Um, guys, thank you very much for, for listening along again. It's been lovely speaking to you all and we will speak to you all next week. Likewise. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye. Bye.